Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, Mike Drews and I spoke on the topic of lab developed tests, the ongoing Theranos saga and the state of LDTs and IVDs. We covered a lot of ground and talked about things like what is a lab developed test? How is Theranos able to market a test without the typical testing rigor applied to an IVD? And just how lab-developed tests are regulated. There was so much to talk about on this episode that we had to come back and record a part two. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Mike Drews is the president of Vascular Sciences, a name that you're likely familiar with if you've listened to very many episodes of the podcast. He also has a PhD in biomedical engineering, extensive experience with regulatory strategy. And he knows the ins and outs of the FDA and the history behind most of the regulations. And not only that, he has the heart of a teacher and everything he does is to improve the medtech industry. So without further ado, we hope you enjoyed this episode with Mike Drews on the state of lab developed tests. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's podcast. And with me is Mike Drews, a common name on the Global Medical Device Podcast. Glad to have you with us today. Mike, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Etienne. Nice to speak to you and your audience. And Happy New Year. This is the first podcast that we're doing in 2023. So Happy New Year to you and everybody listening. Absolutely. Yeah. It's flying by for me, but I know we're only two weeks in. We'll see how the rest of the month goes. Today's episode, we wanted to talk about the LDTs or the lab developed tests, kind of like an ongoing saga, and whether or not the Theranos loophole should be closed. Maybe before we get into too many details, though, maybe we should talk about we're the Global Medical Device Podcast. Why would we be talking about laboratory developed tests? Do you want to answer that? Yeah, great question. And by the way, thanks as always for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience. Simply put, as we'll discuss in more detail, a laboratory developed test or an LDT is a type of in vitro diagnostic or IVD. And IVDs are regulated by the FDA, specifically by CDRH, the Centers for Devices and Radiological Health, as a regulated medical device. So in terms of your question of how does it fit into this particular podcast series, I don't think there's any doubt, or maybe there is, <laughs> that this is a topic that is of legitimate discussion for a medical device audience. Well, yeah, it's interesting because when I just look up, I don't know, laboratory developed tests, one of the headliners right now is the Theranos case. And, you know, I already mentioned, should we close that loophole? And I don't know, one of the things when I think about the Theranos case, if you're not familiar with it, there was a test developed. And it was fraudulently claimed to do so many different things, but it fell under the laboratory developed test rather than the in vitro diagnostic. Or did it? That's one of the questions well, that I'm hoping to dig into. But anyway, Great question. Ahead. I want to know what your thoughts are on that too. But 
My other question is, so when we talk about there being a loophole, and maybe we'll get to this in a little bit here, this seems like a worst case scenario. And I wonder, and maybe you can give some context or history. Is that what's driving some of this conversation or has this been a conversation for a while? I think the short answer to that question, Edian, is both. This has been a conversation for quite a while, even before the Theranos fiasco, as I like to call it. This has been going on now for probably a couple of decades, this debate about lab-developed tests and whether or not they should be regulated by the FDA. But certainly, as we'll talk about in more detail later, Theranos was one of the things, probably the single event that really brought this whole subject, if you will, to the attention, not just of the medical device community, but of the political community and also to the American public. But we can get to the details of Theranos as we continue our discussion. Sure. Maybe what we ought to start with is what is a laboratory developed test? And one of the things that I'm curious about, because you already mentioned a little bit about what one is, it falls under the heading of an in vitro diagnostic, but what's the difference? When does it start falling under even more so IVD? Yeah, great question. So I think in order to truly understand this before delving into lab developed tests in particular, let's just take half a step back, Eddie, and talk about in vitro diagnostics or IVDs. So what's an in vitro diagnostic? Well, simply put, and I'm paraphrasing from the Code of Federal Regulations, a in vitro diagnostic is a reagent or an instrument or a system that's intended for diagnosis of disease or condition, including a determination of the state of health. And I love phrases like that, determination of state of health. Why? Because I have no idea what that means. But simply put, an IVD, as I said, is some sort of an instrument or system. Usually it uses a sample from the body, a biological fluid or tissue, could be saliva, could be blood, could be urine, could be lots of different things, in order to perform some sort of a measurement, maybe making a diagnosis or something like that. So because it's intended to mitigate, treat, or prevent a disease, injury, or condition, it clearly fits the CFR definition of a medical device. Because as some in the audience may remember, I did one of my many webinars for Greenlight a year or two ago on what is a regulated medical device. And I went through in some detail the CFR definition of a medical device, which is many, many paragraphs long. However, the essence of that definition, if you were to boil it down into its simplest form, is something, anything other than a drug that's intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat a disease, injury, or condition. And it's that last part, Eddie, and that's the most important, prevent, diagnose, or treat a disease, injury, or condition. Nobody can dispute the fact that an in vitro diagnostic fits that definition. So IVDs are medical devices as defined by the CFR. As a result, they're subject to FDA regulation. And I don't want to overgeneralize when it comes to regulation. We're talking about the regulatory side that is the pre-market side, showing that the test is safe and effective. But we're also talking about the manufacturing slash quality side, making sure that the test is reliable and reproducible and so on and so on. So maybe to illustrate further, Eddie, would it help to share some quick examples of in vitro diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Okay. I know you are very knowledgeable in this area as well. Do you have any thoughts on what you think is an IVD in terms of an example? Well, I was thinking more on the other side, what could potentially be a lab developed test, but as far as- We're going to get to that in a second. Yeah. But when I think about in vitro diagnostic, well, COVID tests, for example, 
I don't have a lot of examples coming to mind just at the moment, but if you have any in front of you, I'd love to. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I do like to sometimes put you on the spot. Yeah. So just sort of fair warning. So yeah, COVID test is a perfect example of an IVD. Pregnancy tests, HIV tests, blood glucose tests, urine tests, even cancer tests. These are all examples of in vitro diagnostics. IVDs can be used either in a hospital or a doctor's office, sometimes in the back of an ambulance or even in a person's home, like a COVID test. The point is that all of these things are regulated by the FDA. And remember, because they're regulated by the FDA, they're regulated in those two ways. One is on the pre-market side, in terms of safety and efficacy, but the other is on the manufacturing or quality side in terms of reproducibility and so on. And both of those things are going to be important when we now talk about lab-developed tests. When you talk about those things, my mind goes back to the beginning. We were talking a little bit about theranosine, and I said, well, that wasn't an IVD. And you said, or is it? And everything that you gave, a lot of the things that were claimed previously by maybe Theranos or other companies who may be an LDT, they you know do it very similar to what you're saying, whether it's the glucose, the blood testing, HIV, and so forth. So what is your opinion in that situation then? Well, before I give you my opinion, let's talk about okay. what an LDT is and, and how does it differentiate from an IVD. So we just spent a couple of minutes talking about an IVD. What is an LDT? An LDT is a subset of IVDs. And the biggest difference, certainly from a regulatory perspective, is that LDTs are not regulated by the FDA, at least not right now. My question to you, Eddie, and before I continue on is, and this goes back a couple of decades now, but why do you think historically LDTs have not been regulated by the FDA? Well, my understanding is right now they're regulated under CLIA, the clinical laboratory trying to remember the, what is that acronym? Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendment Certification. And I believe that happened in 1988. So they were a laboratory that developed a test. And the idea is similar to how a physician is able to use a device under that certification. The test that was developed didn't need to be submitted to the FDA because of that reason. It was in a location that was you know specific and a, a single device that was probably simpler than maybe a manufacturer might be putting together. I think you're going in the right direction, Elian. Let me give you a hint, and then I'll ask you the same question again. So the philosophical intent, if you will, of an LDT is something that's developed in one particular laboratory or clinic or hospital for use only in that laboratory or clinic or hospital. So this is the key difference between an LDT and an IVT. It's something that is developed in a single place, a single lab, a hospital or clinic or something intended to be used only in that place and not sent to other places or sold to other places or so on. So with that big hint, there's actually a very simple regulatory explanation as to why FDA does not regulate, at least in the past, up until now anyway, LDTs. Well, I would assume it would be because the risk is much lower. Good guess, but no. And incidentally, I love it when people guess and they guess wrong. Yeah. Uh, in fact, as we'll talk about, in some cases, the risk can be just as high or even higher. I'll give you one <laughs> more hint. You know, a lot of people like to talk about what FDA regulates. What I like to talk about is what FDA does not regulate. That is the answer to the question I'm asking you right now. What does the FDA not regulate? Consumer or no, that's not. Well, I didn't mean to other product categories. Things that are regulated in other ways. 
So here's the short answer. Let me, as my <laughs> I, I'm not going to get like it. <laughs> say, no, 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 that's okay. As my attorney friends like to say, let me lead the witness. FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. And this is a very, very important point. FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. That is, FDA cannot tell physicians what to do. The only thing they can do is tell us, meaning industry, what to do. And so when a hospital develops a test in their own lab for use in their own lab, one could easily argue, and this is the argument that has been made for decades, that that is the practice of medicine, just like pharmaceutical compounding, just like reprocessing of reusable medical devices, just like in many cases, 3D printing. These are all technologies that FDA has not regulated in the past. Why? Because it's the practice of medicine. I'm not saying I agree or I disagree. I'm just simply providing the justification, the rationale for why LDTs have not been historically regulated. Because when you look at the examples of LDTs, they're exactly the same examples as the ones that I just mentioned for IVDs. In other words, oftentimes the technology is exactly the same. The labeling is exactly the same. It's just a matter of who develops the test, whether it's a company or a lab, and where is that test used? And by the way, Eddie, and although this debate has been going on now for years slash decades, I find it interesting that nobody seems to have pointed out that we call these things laboratory-developed tests. We do not call them company-developed tests. I guarantee decades ago, in the very early days of LDTs, if these were developed by companies, not individual laboratories, without a doubt, they would have always been regulated by the FDA for all the reasons that we've already discussed, not the least of which is it clearly fits the CFR definition of a medical device. So these are laboratory-developed tests, not company-developed tests. Does that help? That does make sense. So when you talk about it that way, it makes sense when I think about what the difference is in an LDT and an IVD. It does help in that regard for sure. The thing that maybe it muddies the water a little bit more in this specific case, if I think of Theranos, because that is a company, but it's also a single company's laboratory. Is that how that worked? It kind of um, depends on how you define laboratory. It also depends on how you define hospital. You know, when the Theranos case happened several years ago, I was one of several people that were invited to come into FDA to chime in on this. And one of the questions that I raised somewhat rhetorically, but also very seriously, is how do you define a single laboratory? You know, the example that I used was the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic is a very large hospital. They have multiple buildings. So if they develop a LDT in one building of their hospital, are they allowed to use it in the building across the street that's also part of their hospital? Mayo Clinic also has facilities in different states, not just in Minnesota, but in Arizona and I think in Florida and maybe some other places as well. So if the Mayo Clinic develops an LDT, say, in Minnesota, are they allowed to use it in a Mayo facility in Arizona or in Florida or somewhere else. You know, this illustrates one of the many recurring themes that we've talked about a lot in the podcast over the years, and that is regulation is about two things. One, it's about the interpretation of words. And second, it's our ability to defend our interpretation. We can interpret the words in many different ways. What does a single lab mean? Does it mean, you know, just one hospital, as long as it has the same name, it doesn't matter how many facilities they have or where they're located, or do we interpret it in a different way? Clearly, Theranos had a, let's just say, a fairly aggressive or maybe even loose interpretation of the concept of an LDT. 
And when you talk about the definition of a hospital or, or what is, what constitutes a laboratory, my mind thinks, okay, well, they are regulated by CLIA or regulated by CLIA, governed by CMS. However you look at that, surely there's a definition out there. I don't know what it is at the moment. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I mean, has that not been defined even by CLIA? Definition of what? A laboratory. Not a specific definition. And even if there is, you know, I work with a lot of companies. They pay me to interpret words in lots of different <laughs> ways. So quite frankly, and this might sound a little brash to some of in our audience, but I'm going to be honest here. I don't care. You give me any definition that you want. I will interpret it in the way that will be best for the company. Or alternatively, if I'm working on the side of the FDA, I will interpret that same definition, you know, on behalf of the FDA. So remember, regulation is about the interpretation of words. But more importantly, Eddie, and you're exactly right. I don't want to give our audience the impression that LDTs are not regulated at all, because that would clearly be factually incorrect. They are regulated to a certain extent. They are regulated under the CLIA regulation. And CLIA, among other things, is interested in things like accuracy and precision and sensitivity and specificity. But these are all things that if you took a traditional IVD to the FDA, they would be interested in exactly the same thing. So one of the things that bothers me about this whole debate and the reason why when we didn't talk about the political influences here, but the reason why we're talking about this at the beginning of 2023, the new year, is because just last month in December, when Congress was debating the budget for FDA for the fiscal year 2023, one of the things that was specifically not passed was the Valid Act. And the Valid Act is verifying accurate leading edge IVCT development. Basically, this would have given FDA the statutory authority to regulate LDTs like all other IVDs. Even though it had bipartisan support, and even though there was debate, although maybe not enough debate, and even though EVAMED, the industry association, advocated for passing ballot, it did not go through. And so the reason why I bring that up is because that could have cleared up a lot of this mess. But right now, they are regulated by CLIA, but Let's put it this way. CLIA regulation is not as robust as FDA regulation. I'm trying to be kind and also to be simple here. And then the other thing that I, coming back to my original point, Eddie, the biggest opposition to the Valid Act came from people representing these hospitals and these clinics. They argued that this would be too burdensome if they were to require getting a 510K or de novo or a PMA on all of these LDTs. Well, Philosophically speaking, the regulatory burden, in other words, what's necessary to show that the device or the test is safe and effective and reliable and reproducible and so on, it's exactly the same whether it's regulated by the FDA or not. In fact, here's a rhetorical question, Etienne, and feel free to agree or to disagree. But the safety and efficacy and the reproducibility and the reliability, all these other things for a in vitro diagnostic or for an LDT. Do you think that that's going to matter if it's being developed by a company or by a hospital? It shouldn't. Absolutely Absolutely not. not. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely not. I mean, safety and efficacy of any medical device is determined by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different things. But one thing that I will guarantee that it's not determined by is who develops it, you know, whether it's used in a single facility or multiple facilities. Absolutely. Regrettably, in many ways, I think the whole focus of this discussion and this debate has been on the wrong part of the problem. 
And when I think about the political side, and the reason I asked you earlier about the Theranos case, is that what is driving this? The question in my mind, when I'm just doing a little bit of research about all of this, is if this has been a sufficient means for regulating LDTs, and then we have a worst case situation that happens driving a regulation, could it be too burdensome? That is kind of one of the questions in my mind. Well, but at the same time, if this is a loophole that a company can use to mass produce a test, then it makes total sense that if the regulation is good enough, something should change. Either the LDE should be regulated, or if that's good enough, an IBD should be allowed to be regulated in the same way that an LDT is. That is just the opinion I have. And I suppose you add color as to which way it should go. But yeah, I do lean towards more of the regulation of the IBD. Well, I like how you characterize the LDT as a loophole. I would remind you that many people to this day characterize the 510K also as a loophole in the law, but we won't go on that tangent, at least not right now. I'm sorry, I forget if there was a question there somewhere. No, not a question per se. I suppose if I were to ask a question, if we rewind the clock before Theranos, we already asked the question, or did we ask the question, why would a lab develop? Yeah, I don't think we actually asked that. So let's go back because I really want to dig into it in a little more detail. LDTs, we talked about what they are. Let's talk about some examples and let's also talk about why they're developed by laboratories. So you remember the examples I gave you of IVDs a few minutes ago. Recall those examples because they're going to sound very familiar to what I tell you now for LDTs. Examples of LDTs include things like chemistry tests for detecting glucose in the blood or some other kind of a protein in the blood that's tested on some kind of a body fluid, a flu test, a drug test using mass spectroscopy, for example. These are all exactly the same, or at least very, very similar, substantially equivalent, if you will, to FDA-regulated in vitro diagnostics. So it's really that who develops it and where it's intended to be used is the key differentiator as a biomedical engineer. And as you know, and many of our audience know, my background is in biomedical engineering, Eddie, and that's what my PhD is in. There is no difference in terms of the technology between an IVD and the LDT, the difference primarily is who uses it and where it's developed and so on and so on. In terms of why labs develop these tests, this is another thing that I think it's important for our audience to understand. There's basically two most common scenarios of why a lab or a hospital would develop their own test. The most common scenario is it's a new test. In other words, They develop or use a new LDT because an equivalent commercial test is not currently available. This happens a lot in the detection of rare genetic diseases like Huntington's disease and so on. These are diseases that only affect a very, very small number of people. And so it's probably not worth it for a traditional for-profit medical device company to develop a test to do this. There's just not enough money in it for them. So the hospital tries to fill that unmet need by developing the test themselves. You know, what do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. That's right. The other reason why labs often develop these tests is if they want to take an existing IVD and modify it in some way to do something else, to do something a little different. And interestingly enough, in that particular scenario, Eddie, when a hospital modifies an existing IVD, let's say you have an IVD on a market from a medical device company, it has a 510K. Now the hospital, for whatever reasons, they want to make a modification to that IVD. Now, actually, technically, FDA considers that IVD no longer to be an IVD, and now it becomes an LDT. Any guesses to why? 
give you a big hint. It's the same the practice answer to of the medicine. question before. The practice of medicine. Bingo. So good. So you're learning. The practice of medicine, just like in pharmaceutical compounding, for example, if your doctor says take a 10 milligrams of this particular drug and a 10 milligram pill is not available, but you have a 20 milligram pill and you cut it in half, you're modifying that pill. And therefore, that's the practice of medicine. FDA has nothing to do with it. But how about this not so hypothetical scenario? How about a hospital chooses to take a IVD that has a 510K? They make a modification to it. The manufacturer of the original IVD finds out about it. And let's just say they have some concerns as to whether this modification is kosher or not. Does that company now have a obligation to go to the hospital and say, hey, we have been made aware that you're using our test. Thank you for using it. But oh, by the way, you've modified the test. And we're not sure if that test is now still safe and effective. I hope, Eddie, and you don't have to have a JD after your name from Harvard Law or Hopkins or somewhere else to appreciate ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. There could be some very interesting product liability ramifications here. And as our audience knows, I spend some of my time you know, acting as an expert witness in medical device product liability cases. So I'm giving you a hypothetical, but maybe not so hypothetical scenario. So from an obligation, when you use that word obligation, from a regulatory standpoint, they might not be obligated, but what you're saying is from a business standpoint, they should be concerned, potentially. Or, or maybe I'm naive, but let's just say from an ethical perspective. Well, I was going to bring that up too, but yeah, right. Absolutely. The other thing, I thought you were going to go a different direction with that because I started thinking about ad promo and the companies who might be thinking, oh, we have an additional indication for use, for example, rather than resubmit or look at this again, just suggest, start just suggesting to other companies. Obviously that is a litigation waiting to happen, it's, but that uh, could be a it's temptation. An interesting idea. And I'm sure that there are companies that would probably like that option. If I was, you know, consulting for one of those companies, I would quote Elmer Fudd in the Bugs Bunny cartoon. And that is be very, very careful because you've, as you alluded to a moment ago, you could be going down a potentially tortuous and dangerous path. I think it probably could be navigated safely and effectively, but you really need to do it uh, very, very carefully. Yeah. So almost three things you need to think about. We talked about the regulatory business, but uh, absolutely the ethical. I would 100% agree with that. The risk is interesting when it comes to LDTs. And I don't know if we have time to go into that or if we should have a second episode with your thoughts as far as how that applies. Well, since you opened the door, let's start and then we'll see how it goes. Part of the justification in the past for LDTs not being regulated by the FDA. And again, I'm not saying I agree or I disagree. I'm just simply trying to present all of the different arguments, kind of to steal the metaphor from Fox News to present a fair and balanced approach. So we talked earlier about the primary justification why LDTs are not regulated because they're the practice of medicine. Another justification is that many of these in the past have been low-risk kinds of products. And that is a gross simplification to say the least, for a whole bunch of, as you know, I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in several different areas, one of them being risk. Even outside of the LDT realm, I see a lot of people making the assumption that if a product is non-invasive and IVDs and LDTs are by definition non-invasive, 
if a product is non-invasive, it's by definition low risk. And that's absolutely not the case, at least not necessarily. Many non-invasive devices are in fact low risk, but some of them are not. Can you think of an example of a type of device that never comes in contact with the patient and yet is a very, very high risk, even a class three device? Like an MRI machine? Good guess, but no. Those are actually class two devices. There are several examples, but some of them are in vitro diagnostics. For example, a IVD that's intended to diagnose cancer. That IVD is not coming in contact with the patient. In some cases, it's not even being used in the same room or even in the same building as the patient. And yet an IVD for cancer, almost without exception, these are almost always regulated as class three PMA devices. And there's a particular form of risk, a particular type of risk that makes it a class three as opposed to a class two or lower. Can you guess what that is? I was thinking of a question. So can you say that one more time? (laughs) Yeah, I said a moment ago that IVDs for cancer are typically regulated by the FDA as class three PMA devices, Right. but they never come in contact with the patient. They're probably not even used in the same room, or as I said, sometimes in the same building as the patient. So most people, when they think of risk, they think, well, gee, how can something that never comes in contact with you, never touches you, how can that be a high risk class three device? Well, it influences everything that comes after it. It could potentially influence your care. I don't know. I'm just thinking of like what type of cancer it is. Let's suppose it's a breast cancer that could result in a mastectomy or something like that. That'd be potentially devastating depending on what the results are of that test. Yeah, you're definitely going in the right direction. And Ian, so kudos to you for being willing to get up to the plate and in the bat. <laughs> Let me help you along just a little bit. So our audience may remember that one of my most popular webinars that I did for Greenlight a few years ago is my three-bucket approach to risk, which has now become an adopted risk standard for the FDA, although they refuse to give me credit for it, but that's a topic of a different discussion. Just to recap, bucket number one is what I call the probability of direct harm. And this is the most obvious form of risk that most people think of. This is the only form of risk that's addressed in the design controls. That risk for an IVT or an LDT is zero because it doesn't come in contact with you. Bucket number two is the probability of harm of not using the device. And this is a PMA requirement. It's not a 510K or de novo requirement. In other words, what alternatives are there available? Alternative devices, alternative drugs, alternative surgical procedures. Relating that risk to LDTs, I said one of the reasons why hospitals develop an LDT in the first place is because probably there's not another test out there that's commercially available. So the probability of harm of not using is significant because there's not an alternative. But it's really bucket number three that explains the question, why are these non-invasive IVDs class three PMAs? It's the probability of harm of providing the wrong information. In other words, false positives and false negatives. Telling the patient that they have cancer when in fact they do not, that would be a false positive, or the worst case scenario, and this is exactly the reason why it's a class three PMA device, is telling the patient they do not have cancer when in fact they really do. And that is the single reason why these kinds of tests, whether it's an IVD or possibly even an LDT, can in fact be very high risk devices in spite of the fact that they never come in contact with the patient. 
this is the beginning of the discussion of risk when it comes to LDT, but there's some other aspects of it as well. If we want to do this in our next discussion, maybe this is a good time to do that. I think that's great. We can do that. I was just going to add one on because when I was looking at the Theranos case, that actually is one of the things that's going on with the class action lawsuit on behalf of Arizona patients. There was a false negative for heart health. And one of the people who experienced that actually had a heart attack within a month of getting his results, according to the complaint. So it's not a hypothetical to use your words. Absolutely. One of the other things that I was just going to circle back and reemphasize on the risk associated with LDTs is the example you used of a hospital using an IVD and altering it. And now it's an LDT. Whatever the risk was for that IVD, now it's an LDT if we assume LDTs are low risk, or that's part of the definition, then that kind of backfires a little bit when you think about going upstream. Actually, that's a very good point, Eddie, and thank you for reminding me of that. That's something that I should have mentioned, just to remind everybody. So if a hospital modifies an IVD under a 510K, it now becomes an LDT. But think about it this way. If the company who has the device on the market, if they want to modify it, they will either have to notify the FDA of that modification in the form of a special 510K or a pre-sub supplement, or if they choose not to notify the FDA, they can do that, but they're still supposed to do what we call a letter to file. This is all under the general umbrella of change management, something that I've spent a lot of time talking about in these podcasts and these webinars. But here's the irony. If the hospital makes a modification to the device, which used to be an IVD as a 510K, Do they need to notify anybody? Absolutely not. They don't even have to notify the FDA that they're doing an LDT. Why? Because it's the practice of medicine. I think at the very least, that's ironic, maybe even hypocritical to have that sort of a differentiation. If the hospital does one thing, they're treated one way. If a company does exactly the same thing, they're treated a different way. Something not quite kosher about that logic. Well, we'll plan to have another episode to dive into a few other questions as far as what we can do about this and some best practices, perhaps tips for people people who find themselves in the middle when the earthquake parts, finally, when this valid act finally is passed. So we'll see. And by the way, I think just very, very quickly, when will the valid act pass? I think the answer is very, very simple. If and when another Theranos tragedy occurs, unfortunately, that's when this is going to happen. Because regrettably, and this is not unique to this situation, most of the time, regulation is created reactively, not proactively. In other words, something really bad happens. Now let's create some regulation to prevent it. I think it's very unfortunate that there has been such a delay, not just you know in this last congressional budget that was passed, but for years and years. And imagine you know the explanations these people who are making these decisions are going to have to try to spin on the television when something, I hope it doesn't happen, but the laws of probability say that sooner or later, it probably will. I'm working with companies right now in the LVD space who are very, very tempted to put their products onto the market as LDTs. And I'm really trying to hold them back. And they keep saying to me, Mike, it's like a wellness device. We can put it on the market today. We don't need anything from FDA or whatever. That's a hard argument to push back on. So if and when there's another Theranos-like situation, and in our next discussion, I want to be able to dig into how Theranos specifically is related to the LDT situation, because I think there's some interesting twists and turns in that part of the puzzle as well. Does it take another tragedy to get people to wake up? 
Sometimes it does. One person told me that sometimes regulations can be boring, but the things that led to that regulation are usually very interesting. So, Well said. I don't think that was me. I wish I could take credit, but I don't think I can. I'll, I'll look it up so I can make sure I do give credit, but we'll include links to some of these resources and to these acts so that you can read a little bit more about them. And I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time out and uh, having this conversation with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. We'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few of the points I took away from the conversation are lab developed tests are regulated, but not by the FDA and not nearly as rigorous as IBDs. Lab developed tests are considered the practice of medicine and the FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. So they do not regulate the lab developed tests per their enforcement discretion. That said, there is a ton of overlap with IBDs and LDTs to the point that if a lab were to take a class three LDT, a class three IVD and modify it for its own use, it would become an LDT. There's a lot of ambiguity around what a laboratory is and what the scope of that word is, which translates to ambiguity around the scope of an LDT. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out to Mike Drews on LinkedIn and let him know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru, or look me up on LinkedIn. In addition to our award-winning software, We've built a community where you can go to join the conversation, learn more about the things we discuss on the podcast. I'm actually thinking about hosting future podcasts live in the community. So if you ever listen to one of these episodes and think, man, I wish you'd ask this question, come join the live episode and make sure your questions are being answered. You can join us at community.greenlight.guru. Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us and it lets us know how we're doing. Thanks again. You all are the best. Take care. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules, they lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.